Welcome to another episode of Becoming Referrable, the podcast that helps you be the kind of advisor people can't stop talking about. I'm Julie Littlechild, and on this week's show, Steve and I speak with Brett Davidson. Brett is based in London and is the founder of FP Advance, as well as the Uncover Your Business Potential program. Through his work, he helps financial planning professionals advise better and live better by growing more profitable businesses without losing their social purpose, or as he says, their soul. And for some perspective, Professional Advisor Magazine rated him one of the top 50 most influential people in UK financial services three different times. We talked to Brett about the business and what advisors need to do to build a business that can not only sustain growth, but drive referrals. He talks about the specific tactics that you can put in place to achieve both. Now on a personal note, Brett has a great story. In 2015, he and his wife Debbie sold most of their possessions, rented out their home in London, and went traveling full-time without their business skipping a beat. Love it. And with that, let's get on with the show. So, Brett, welcome to the podcast today. I'm so excited to to talk to you. We've known each other for a lot of years, but I'm really excited to talk to you about the work that you're doing with advisors. So, welcome. Uh, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. So, look, maybe what we could do just to orient our listeners is give, uh, if you could give us a quick overview of your business, the work that you're actually doing with advisors, and maybe a little bit of the path that got you here today. Yeah, sure. So, um, I'm the founder of a company called FP Advance and also a program called the Uncover Your Business Potential Program. Uh, we work with financial planning professionals who are trying to grow and become more profitable. But to do that, you know, without losing their social purpose or their soul in the process. So uh, I'm an Australian. You might hear that in the accent. But I moved to the UK about 12 years ago. Um, I'd been an advisor in Australia for 14 years. And we'd been through that transition, if you like, from an old school sales-oriented insurance uh, business and transformed into a modern financial planning practice and, and done a reasonably good job of that, uh, moved to the UK and, and sort of found that, you know, they were going through that transition. And so I, I set up my company to work with advisors who were, you know, client centric and trying to do it right. Uh, and I've really been doing that ever, ever since. And the business has really just evolved over that 12, 12 years into what it is today. That's great. Now, I noticed on your site, um, you have a motto and it says, advise better, live better. Can you just tell me a bit about what that means and, and why, you know, why you say that? Yeah, I'll, I'll just give you the quick backstory because I think that explains it best. But sure. I, I've been doing consulting work and, and coaching and stuff with advisors here and really enjoying it because I like the business. I like the profession. Um, but it just became clear to me that what the really good advisors are trying to do for their clients is deliver you know, lifestyle outcomes. It's about, you know, the meaning in the money. It's what you do with your, your money that and, and how you, I don't know, live the fullest expression of yourself. That's the magic in financial planning. And I thought that's great. But I looked at some of these uh, businesses and thought, you know, uh, you're, you're paddling very, very hard to make some of that happen for your clients. And it, it doesn't seem right. And I thought my, my focus is now going to be about helping you get your business and your life in that shape so that um, you can have more fun doing the things you do, 
perhaps more longevity in your career because uh, you're, you're happy to stick around if you're enjoying yourself. But also, I think importantly, real credibility with your clients. It's, it's hard to talk to people about stuff that perhaps you're not working on yourself. We don't need to be masters of everything we teach to others, but we certainly need to be trying to walk our own talk. And, and so that's, that became the focus of advise better, live better, get your business in shape uh, and, and have more fun and live more life in the process. And so you, you also follow your own advice, right? Because I think this has played out in your own life in a, in a pretty big way as well. Yeah, for sure. So, so about the time, you know, I'm having that epiphany with, you know, this is, this is the new sharper version of who we are, what we do. Um, I started working with a life coach, Kerry Richardson, who's based in the US. And, you know, I started to work on these issues in my own life. And, you know, over a number of years, um, you know, we made some quite dramatic changes. And and last year, as you know, uh, my wife and I traveled uh, globally for 15 months, uh, just returning to the UK once a quarter to deliver our face-to-face work. The rest of the time, we were based uh, all over the world. You know, uh, we were in France, Spain. I did a ski instructor course for seven weeks in Switzerland. Uh, We were in the US for a month skiing, Canada for a month skiing. Um, I've done the last three ski seasons in the Alps. Uh, So, you know, we've made some big changes that have allowed us to walk that talk as well, if you like. So, I I mean, it's such a great story that you've you've done all that and managed to keep the business going. I mean, how does how do you actually prepare for that kind of change? So, that it doesn't, you know, I mean, obviously we've got, we need money. We've got financial responsibilities at the same time. Yeah, for sure. And so, so our plan was, was not to take a pay cut while we did that. That, well, that wasn't what we were thinking about because uh, <laughs> uh, we'd go and do all that stuff, but it, it wouldn't be as much fun, would it? So um, it started in baby steps. And, and so when I, when I started working with Kerry, the very first call, and so this is the thing, right? When, when people tell you these stories, uh, I'm telling you the end bit that's all shiny and lovely. Mm-hmm. Man, there was some, some <laughs> funny games on the way. So that the very first call with Kerry, I'd just finished reading this book uh, called Dying to Be Me by Anita Morjani. I don't know if you've read it, but she, she was mm-hmm. like, near death with cancer and had a bit of a spiritual awakening and, and survived and then wrote a lovely book. But the key question that this book asked was, if you lived without fear, what would you do? And so my wife and I had sort of, journaled and noodled on this question and so I stupidly said that to the life coach on the very first call and Kerry said so Brett what would you do if you lived without fear and I, <laughs> you know what I'd um Kerry I'd take the last week of every month off so I'd work three on have one off and that was insane to me at the time because I was Mr Workaholic at that point and she said well why don't we start with that then and so that next month I couldn't quite bring myself to take a whole week off. I took two days off, which at the time was still massive for me. My wife and I are going away for Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday in the Cotswolds here in the UK to a spa spa retreat. And on the train on the way there, um, I had just a a dodgy train cup of coffee. I spilt it three times in two minutes. Spilt it, cleaned it, (laughs) spilt it again. Surely that's impossible. Cleaned it up, spilt it again. And my wife is looking at me going, what is wrong with you? And the truth was, I was just way outside my comfort zone, not working. I mean, it sounds, it's embarrassing to fess up. That's where, that's where I was at. And, and so that was the start 
we we tried with that. The week off once a month didn't didn't quite float our boat, so we tried other methods. Uh, the first big trip we took, we took six weeks away skiing. That was one of my sort of dreams was to spend most of the winter in the mountains if I could. So the first trip was six weeks, which again, that was massive when we booked it. Um, and, you know, in the lead up, so we booked it six months ahead, the time off. Um, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. We get to about three months out and every day was like an emotional roller coaster. One day I'm euphoric with the decision I've made to go skiing for six weeks. The next day I'm sort of crying in my hands going, oh my God, I'll never be able to take the time off. If people find out, they'll think I'm a slacker, like all these crazy emotions. And then we just went and did it and we had an absolute ball. And I think that was the bit that made us then start to think about what else could we do. And so, so the next crazy conversation, like a year after that, was um, do a whole season. So I did three and a half months one, the next winter. And then the conversation after that with Kerry, and this is now we're three years in, so it's not all happening back to back. But uh, we, we said, look, what if absolute nirvana would be what if we could batch all our face-to-face work uh, in a few weeks, a quarter, and then the rest of the time we could be based anywhere in the world. So we said, why don't we work on that? And we sort of set a bit of a plan for a year. Uh, we get about, I don't know, nine months in. So we're in April, um, a couple of years back. And if you had have asked me on the 1st of April, where are you in relation to that goal? I would have said, well, I don't know, probably nowhere. By June... We were out of our house and, uh, and heading off to Amsterdam for you know for our fifteen months away. So wow. Kerry just got us to do the first thing, which was to we were thinking: do we put our furniture in storage because we're going to rent our apartment out? Do we put it in storage? And I thought, look, you know, every time I've put gear in storage, three years later, I then get it out and chuck it away or sell it. So I'm going to do that up front. So Deb got an auctioneer out to look at our furniture to see if it was sellable at auction. He said it is but I need it tomorrow because they have to photograph it and there's a six-week lead time to put it in the catalogue. So we looked at each other and said, yeah, mate, take it. And that was the first domino. So once you've got no furniture, man, you've got to start thinking, about how do you get out of your house? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 Brett, how do, how do we translate that into an advisor's life? How, how, could, um, how could an advisor do something like you did and take that much time off and, and still – have that connection with the clients and have that connection with the business. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I believe um, a lot of advisors could do it should they want to. And I accept also perhaps not everyone wants to do what we did, but um, you know, batching when you see clients, I mean, I know some advisors who do that already just to, you know, to allow their firm to be organized. They know when all the reviews are going to happen. They know the prep work that's involved. And so, you know, if you're a smaller lifestyle financial planning business, why couldn't you batch all your reviews around, you know, four months a year or even six months a year or something like that? Um, you know, or, or even batching if you want to work more than that or you've got a, a more dynamic business, then, you know, batch them around eight months a year and, and have, have four months where you can be living somewhere else. And while we were away, we weren't, we weren't on holidays. We were just working in the places that we were living. So, you know, we worked in coffee shops in Seville in Spain and, and the south of France in the summertime and the countryside. And, you know, I was still contactable, you know, with modern technology. Um, you know, I can be talking to clients as if I was in London. My clients are dotted all over the UK anyway, so they don't 
or then to talk, we don't need to uh, necessarily, you know, be face to face. And and that's true for most advisors as well. So, so why couldn't you do something like that? Should you wish to? And if, as you say, uh, that wouldn't be the vision for a lot of people. When you're talking to advisors and as part of your program, I assume part of what you do is talk to them about what that vision might look like. What kind of things do you hear back in, in terms of what they actually want to do? Yeah, I think I think everyone that we talk to, and, and I think this is just true of all small business owners to some extent, you know, everyone's just looking for that right balance of time and money. You know, one without the other is just no good to you, is it? Uh, so, so. Most, most, and I can, I can identify and I share this in the coursework I do. I love the work I do, but at times when I've been, you know, a bit out of control or a bit disorganized or taking on too much, all the fun leaves the building of something that I actually love to do. And what, what came about from getting organized enough to be able to take all that time out or, or travel or whatever what came out of that was a, a, re, a reignition, if you like, of remembering that I really love doing this when I'm organized. And so I think the central theme of what we're doing in our work with advisors is just helping them get structured, organized, planning ahead, you know, on top of their business so that they run it, it doesn't run them. Uh, all the things that I think business people and, and business gurus have been talking about forever. But, you know, we're just trying to turn that into some practical um, lifestyle options, whether it's just having, you know, eight weeks off a year of holiday with your kids when they're when they're on on school break, you know, uh, or, or whatever you want to do. I think I think it's highly personal, um, but I, I just I just don't accept that you can't make uh, positive changes to your own situation. You're in charge, but it does mean then uh, confronting some difficult issues and, and fronting up to some stuff. That to be fair, I think a lot of people are just not prepared to do, you know turn up and, and, and face. Right. So Brett, the, uh, you know, the, the podcast is oriented toward helping advisors grow their practice specifically through uh, referrals. So what are some of the implications of, of being better organized and, 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 and doing some of the things that you're recommending in terms of uh, perpetuating or accelerating growth or increasing referrals? Yeah, so, so I think... This is, um, I think this would be a powerful way to, to accelerate referrals. And, and the firms that I've worked with, I think they've, they've certainly seen this as an outcome. And I think it's happening for two reasons. One, uh, to be better organized and to have your business running more effectively means that you then, you know, consistently deliver on the promises you're making to clients, you know, running around like a crazy person, delivering at the last minute, working till 10 o'clock at night to get a report done, you know, that's not, that's not going to lead to consistently great outcomes for the client. You know, mistakes are going to be made uh, when everyone's under that kind of pressure. So just getting organized, I think, sends a very positive and referable message to people. You know, if, if people come in, everything that you said you would do has been done, uh, because you're organized, you've also put in a few extras they weren't expecting. Uh, you know, your, your, your mind seems clear and focused on those people because you're not under the cosh. Uh, you know, I think that's, that's highly referable. So that's one aspect. But the second is I think clients want to be working with someone who's walking the talk. And if you're 
you know, um, in your client newsletters, just saying, look, here's a picture of me and my family taking four weeks off in the school holidays to go to Disneyland or go skiing or whatever it is that's your, your thing. I think people find that credible and I think that's also referable. Right. I noticed in your, um, I, I was looking at the outline for your program and you, you talk obviously about the process and whatnot that's required, but you start with nailing your target market and your propositions. So what are you, what are you finding uh, advisors are struggling with and what are you recommending to them on that? Yeah, I, I think this is a, a, a central issue, you know, the question we're always asking from the outset in the course is who do you serve? And the who do you serve question for me is about, you know, who would you like to serve? Who do you enjoy serving? And if you've been in business for a long time, usually uh, the people you like to serve are, are, are in your client bank and they're somewhere near the top and they're really enjoyable to work with. But, um, you know, I think getting clear on that and then narrowing your focus it's this this thing that's again been talked about for years of, of having a real niche most advisors really struggle with this uh, they perceive that they work with anyone who's keen and got money and I, I just don't believe that's true when we look at the data and we usually get them to go through their own client list I think usually your top five or ten clients tell you everything you need to know about your target market um, and I'll give you a quick example. You know, when, when we do that, um, we find a lot of advisors tend to work with business owners or executives who are in that approaching retirement at retirement market. Uh, there'll be someone in there who's a wealthy widow and they say, well, look, clearly we work with them as well. And I'll say, well, you know, if you specialize in widows, you know, you've written a book about it and that's your target market. And it's what it says on your website. Fair enough. But I'm thinking your, your target market is business owners and execs and the widow is just an exception. Like sometimes people die and we end up with a widow as a client and there's no reason to turn them away, but it's not your target market. You know, I'm not going to say on my website, I work with business owners, executives and widows. I'm, I'm just going to be marketing to what is, is my, my real market, the people that I've, I've obviously got loads of people already and I enjoy working with. And then, so once you've defined that, and, and I think you're right, I know I find a lot of advisors still struggle with this. Steve, I know you talk to a lot of folks about this as well. They're, yeah. they're um, still very broad in the definition, fearful of staking a claim. Um, and Steve, you've been interviewing some people on this. I, I assume you'd agree with, with Brett and his perspective there. Oh, yeah. And um yeah, I, I think that there. Well, there, there's, there are two fears, and they relate to, to two different aspects of this. <clears throat> you know, one is the fear of of over fo of over over focusing on on too small a target market. But then there's also the fear of of dedicating yourself to a niche, which does not come with the same kind of restrictions. But um, you know, Brett, what are some of your observations of both of those of of uh, focusing on a particular portion of the population and also uh, specializing in a particular kind of an experience that you deliver. Yeah, I, I think I think um, the first one comes up a lot as as a fear. I mean, I, I've heard the words uh, that you know, if we were to only focus on that that market, what would happen if that market dried up, or you know, or that became a bad idea, or whatever. So I'm going to stay more generalist, but. Um, one, I think it's probably not a well-founded fear unless you're in something very esoteric. Uh, but, but secondly, um, being a generalist today 
uh, for a consumer is super scary. Like I only have to go on to Google. I can find a specialist for absolutely anything. You know, when, when I go on to a website looking for a tradesman and there's some, some um, like free websites here in London where you could find someone, uh, some of the people that are obviously, you know, uh, desperate for work say that they can do building, painting, gardening, clearing your trash, handyman, electrical, plumbing, <laughs> carpentry. I'm not going to hire someone like Massage, that. Massage, you know. Right. <laughs> You know, and, and I think the same for advisors. If you say you do everything, I, I'd be looking at it as a consumer game now, actually, mate, I've got a pension problem. I need to I need to find a pension specialist or something like that, or I'm a you know, a business owner. I, I don't want to go and talk to someone who looks like a run of the mill person. And, you know, maybe I will find those firms and people do find those firms. But if I can Google and I find three options and one of them says they work with, you know, uh, consultants or they work with uh, you know, small business owners. I'm going to. I'm likely to be attracted to that, you know, that group uh, much more strongly than the generalist. And so, once you've nailed that down, then we, I assume, kind of get into what you were talking about earlier. How do we organize? How do we tailor that? So, when what are some of the, th- the things or the processes that you look at with advisors that say, okay, this is what needs to change in order to support that target? Yeah. So, so I think the beautiful thing that comes from from narrowing down and owning your target is it often gets rid of uh, at least some of the complexity that might exist in your business. You know, when you only deal with, you know, a very narrow type of market, you tend to be doing the same jobs over and over, even if they're quite complex. And and that's the bit that allows you to get slicker, you know, and, and clearer about the business processes, how work's going to flow through, what's the client experience you're trying to create. Uh, You know, if you work with government employees and entrepreneurs, I haven't got a clue how you would ever, you know, make the client experience or the values or whatever, you know, feel right for for both groups. So so just, just knowing who you serve simplifies a lot of stuff. But then the big one for me, it comes down to uh, your ability to uh, identify and solve problems in your business on a weekly basis. And, you know, I'm thinking a lot of the skills we're teaching advisors in our course, uh, I'll call it business management 101, a lot of this stuff. It's very, very simple, but no one's ever been taught this stuff. You know, most advisors, uh, at least in Australia and the UK, I'm, I'm guessing it's similar in North America, have come through some sort of sales organization in, in the early days and so they were taught a bunch of sales stuff, but I, I never got training once on how to run an effective meeting, how to write a business plan, you know, how to set quarterly objectives and then actually hit them, you know, some of these fundamentals, which are, which are key if you're going to execute on whatever your vision is in your business. Right, right, right. And so uh, can you walk me through in any more detail when you talk about client experience uh, and I assume, you know, I'm making an assumption that part of creating this client experience is to make yourself more referable. What are some of the, those really specific things that an advisor needs to assess in their business today to know if it's right given their target or given their goal of engaging clients? Yeah, I, I think with client experience, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of sort of the I don't know, the Google terminology of key moments of truth. And then I don't mean literally in the way Google put it across in that paper years ago, but just, just every time 
especially in the first contact, you know, when the, 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 the client emails you or, or connects with you on Twitter or phones your office or, or requests a, a chat over the phone, you know, every, every single touch point there from the way that the phone is answered, the enthusiasm and energy of, of the person sort of probably taking a message because I'm assuming you're not sitting there, you know, just waiting for the phone to ring. Uh, as an advisor, so so you know everything the the information that then gets sent out in a timely manner is it clear? Is it understandable? And um, you know probably the, the 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 number one skill for advisors is that very first meeting they have with a brand new client. Is that something that you know knocks people's socks off? Does it blow their mind because it's something that they weren't expecting? Um, you know if it's if it's not doing that. It's, it doesn't mean you never pick up clients or you're going out of business, but it's certainly not referable. If you're just much the same as what I expected I was going to get or you're much the same as the two other advisors I went to see, you know, how, how is that referable? Right. Well, let me, let, me, and let, me add, or let me ask you a little bit more about that because I, I, what I'm hearing sort of in the background is what Julie wrote about in her book. Um, what do you think about – um, the effect on referability of how engaged the advisor is in their business. If, if they've reorganized things so they get, they're accomplishing what they want to accomplish and they're really excited about doing it again, you know, how, how does that affect referability? Yeah, I mean, it's just got to come through, doesn't it? If, if you've um, made changes, uh, you know, had some wins and got your own life in order, um, you, can, you can sit there then with, um, and I don't mean any sort of arrogance or expert syndrome, but you can really sit there. One, you'll probably be able to empathize strongly uh, with the clients you're talking to who are not in that place. Uh, and I know I can certainly empathize with the people I'm talking to because I was them, you know, five or six years ago and in the past. Um, so there's an empathy issue, but, but certainly then being able to describe, um, you know, some strategies that you may have used or implemented to, to walk things forward and make change I just think this gives you absolute credibility with people and surely it must also come across as uh, just a quiet confidence uh, and a knowing that, that perhaps, you know, the others who are still faking it a bit on that front, uh, that they're not going to possess. So I think all of that's got to be referable. And you, I think, Steve, you mentioned this in the past, this notion of just having your, telling your own story and, and telling it authentically and, and how that alone kind of sets you apart from, from other people. So is there anything else? I'd, I'd love to also, I just want to kind of go back to the work that you did with your coach, because I, I, I know I hear a lot of advisors who are thinking about working with coaches. Obviously, you invested time and money and effort in, in that in a big way. Um, what, what actually caused you to think I, it's time for me to work with a coach and examine my business? Cause I think it's relevant for advisors as well. Yeah. So, so I think, I think two things, I think, um, the one that was, uh, most obvious to me was my wife started working with this particular coach and after a year of observing what was changing in her life, I thought, man, I'd like a bit of that. Thanks. What's her name again? So, uh, yeah, so I got given her name and, and started the work. So that I was seeing, seeing someone else's um, example, if you like, of the changes showing up in their life. That was very powerful as a motivator for me to give it a go. Uh, but I think also, you know, I, by that stage, I was, I was absolutely ready. And I think, you know, change, change is hard uh, even when you want to do it. So you've sort of got to be in that place where you're thinking, you know what, um, I can't quite take it anymore. 
uh, with what I'm doing, I think that's the best place often to make change from. I mean, I wish I could do it sooner than that, but in my experience, I can't. Right. Right. So I, I know we're we're coming up on time, and and I've I mean we've been asking you different questions about what advisors are doing. But if if someone was listening today and thinking, yeah, I I, I either need to make changes or I, I feel like my business could be uh, growing faster, I could be more referable. Where do you think they should start? What are those first few steps they need to take? Um, okay. I think that if people haven't read this, there's a fantastic book out there called Traction by Gino Wickman, which is a, just a, a, a great book of, if you like, small business basics of how, how you get your business to be you know, highly functioning. And it just covers off uh, some things that I absolutely love. It's not saying anything particularly new, but wow, it's, it's put across really simply and powerfully. And so a lot of those tools are things that you could, you could use in your business to start to get yourself executing uh, more effectively. You know, and just a quick example, you know, one of the issues he talks about is, is a weekly uh, leadership team meeting. But, but what we do in that is we create a list of issues and every week we just spend an hour uh, resolving those issues. And he's got a process uh, for how you can do that very, very powerfully and simply. And businesses that resolve issues on a weekly basis and walk ideas forward you know, over three months, six months, 12 months, five years, they're the ones that get the compound interest return, if you like, on those execution skills. And I think one of the, the biggest challenges I see in small firms is they're full of ideas, but they're not always full of uh, the skill to execute on those ideas. And that's what sees them stay stuck at a particular level of turnover or, or, or success. And you know one thing I didn't ask you about, but I know I've I've heard you write and, and speak on this issue is is the role of the team in all of this in in really getting your house in order. So what what are you seeing, or what do you recommend advisors think about when it, as it relates to structuring their team effectively? Yeah, it's it's just you're not going to do this on your own. Uh, even if you're a one man band working from home, you know, you're going to have outsourced team, I would have thought, um, because you just don't want to sit there doing all this stuff yourself. But, you know, if you're trying to build any sort of a business, uh, you know, small and lovely in lifestyle or, or an empire, you know, the team is absolutely key. And, and so, you know, getting the right people supporting you uh, is it's just absolutely vital. And I, I remember, you know, the story I often use, but it was a story I heard from a guy a long time ago. Uh, he talked about, you know, uh, uh, parents who sent off their three kids to the city to get a job with a friend of theirs who ran a business. And six months later, they ring up and say, hey, uh, how are our, our three children going? And they find they're all on different levels of pay. And they want to inquire why that is. And so they, the, the, the friend says, well, come and have a look for yourself. And the short version of the story is, you know, the first child uh, doesn't do what they're told. The second child only does what they're told. And the third child doesn't need to be told. And that's the one that's on the highest amount of money. And that's what I'm thinking is the test for your team. Too many advisors I know put up with average staff members who, to be honest, they just can't do the job. And it's not necessarily a criticism of the individuals because, you know, they were hired at their level of skill. But I think aiming higher, uh, you know, if you want a power planner to support you or a PA or an administrator, man, they need to be a killer in their job and they need to hit the ground running. Um, right. Small firms pay lip service to training, 
But to be honest, they don't really do any training and development at all. So don't hire people that need to be developed. Get people that can do the job. Right. That's awesome. So what are you working on now? What uh, what uh, can we look forward to from Brett Davidson? Well, look, our, our next uh, Uncover Your Business Potential course kicks off in June. So we've just started putting the word out about that. Um, uh, so that, that's our main focus over the next few months. Uh, we launched uh, an online course called The Ultimate Guide to Managing Your Financial Planning Business. Um, and that's been going really well. Uh, we'll probably do some more online material uh, later in the year. Um, but that's our main focus at the moment. And I've got a bunch of clients I work with sort of as a non-exec. And so that, that keeps me pretty busy. Wonderful. Well, thank you. So we'll put all these links and things in the show notes, but um, thank you so much for taking the time. It's, uh, I know what, I love the work that you do because it gets so deep into the businesses of these advisors and, and, you know, often we talk about things in theory, but you're in there really fixing some of these problems alongside with them. So, so love that. But thank you again uh, for, for coming out and sharing your story with us. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, and thanks so much for inviting me along. Hi, it's Julie again. It was great to have you with us on Becoming Referrable. If you like what you've been hearing, please do us a favor and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. You can get all the links, show notes, and other tidbits from these episodes at becomingreferrable.com. You can also get our free report, Three Referral Myths That Limit Your Growth, and connect with our blogs and other resources. Thanks so much for joining us.